Welcome to the Exponential Minds Podcast. The research, development, launch, and growth of new technologies is creating incredible momentum in the modern world. Join futurist Nicholas Badminton as he talks with the innovators and the exponential minds that are tackling some of the biggest problems and creating solutions that are propelling humanity to the next level. Hello, my name is Nicholas Badminton and welcome to the Exponential Minds podcast. I travel the world speaking to people about where the future could go. And today I'm incredibly excited to speak to a futurist foresight practitioner and uh, designer Monica Bosquite. She's a futurist with an artist's eye and an inventor's mind. She consults on prototypes, culturally diverse, socially and environmentally engaged future world designs, the media industry, technology co- companies and government. She's also an expert in the immersive media space and, edu- and edutainment and her work consists in connecting leading edge technological innovation with some of the world's most original creative visions that explores the relationships between speculative science fiction narratives and the unfolding of global futures. Welcome Monica and thanks thanks for joining us from uh, South Africa. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to uh, to talk with you in these crazy times. Definitely crazy times. I've been following you for quite some time uh, online and looking at your talks and I'm incredibly excited to speak to you today and I think you know I'd love to know how you sort of become who you are today you know really influential uh, activistic uh, digital nomad as it were and uh, where you started and end your journey to your current state. It was definitely not a not a straight line uh, but a rather windy path so I was born in what was Soviet Union um, at that time, uh, currently Lithuania. And I had this incredible opportunity to come of age at a time where simultaneously um, I experienced the collapse of the physical walls and a totalitarian state, as well as sort of the opening up of the digital world. And I think these two simultaneous experiences have been quite fundamental in shaping who I am and how I think. I guess a, a quite a critical eye that I that I have on the world. Because you know with the, with the collapse of the totalitarian state, it was not just sort of the infrastructure that collapsed, it was an entire propaganda slash belief system from that very limited enclosure, a very limited access that I had as a kid, all of a sudden it's like all these tendrils into the vast open world became available to me through the first means of digital communication and, and, and first sort of social social media platforms. Um, so I think that was that was quite instrumental. I was a bit of a rebel, so <laughs> I stopped going to school uh, at a fairly young age, 16 to be precise. Still graduated my exams, but had a... Um, had a lot of sort of political interests and, and political inquiries, at the same time creative practice, uh, which took me as a photographer to not exactly war zones, but pretty much post-disaster, post-war zones. Found myself in a lot of very, very tricky situations, uh, nearly losing my my life, uh, you know, getting caught with bombings and crossing minefields and um, having a gunpoint um, uh, yeah. at my throat um, in remote areas. 
predominantly in Asia at that time, which, you know, I think all of these experiences were quite fundamental for me in seeing, perceiving reality, you know, outside just that usual techno-fetishistic, techno-optimistic type of a uh, discourse that I think is quite quite popular in, in among uh, a lot of other foresight pr practitioners. And uh, the creative practice slowly kind of became a creative agency slash magazine project, initially very much involved with sort of arts and design and, and, and these uh, conventionally artistic uh, disciplines, but slowly or fast, depending on how you perceive it, shifted towards more uh, collaborations with scientific institutions and technological organizations. And as I departed the, the company that I, that I started in my early 20s, by my mid-20s, after a nearly fatal uh, accident, I really was asking myself, what is that I can do that could allow me to fully connect the, the many obsessions and pathological curiosities and desire to understand what is happening and how did we get here and where are we going? And I guess that just molded into, into foresight uh, practice. It grew out of the creative practice though. You know, initially what I started with is, because uh, my work as a, as a creative director has always been very you know, futuristic in its outward appeal, I guess. So I ended up in Hollywood uh, consulting and working on different um, science fiction productions and consulting different production houses on the work that we're doing with tech companies and any kind of futuristic or future related advertising they were doing. So I was kind of like shaping, helping to shape some of these big uh, names, big directors, producers, writers, uh, how they depict the future. At that time, these were sort of early, early, very early days of VR. Oculus was just being sold um, to Facebook. And so I, I got to get quite involved with these sort of very early stages of immersive media and had a lot of questions and critique about how things were being done. And the next thing I knew, I started speaking about it. <laughs> very, <laughs> very, very, uh, yeah, quite, quite quite in a quite edgy manner <laughs> yeah. and people were telling like Monica you should be more optimistic about it we should high five each other more and I was like no we actually have to be really critical because if we aren't going to be critical of what we do the market will be and it's important that we you know that we really think of all the worst case scenarios that we really think do we really need to do this what do we actually really need to do and so anyway, that, that's what got me into the speaking circuit. It was kind of speaking about the future of content and how uh, the future of immersive media technologies, the future of computation, and what is the future of uh, user interface and user experience, you know, which I really try to bend towards it being you know, the future of human experience and human interface. And as I guess the immersive media technology was moving a little, a little bit slowly, I kind of moved back into this larger a picture of the future and what future is really about and how we tell the stories of it and how we tell the stories of it in a meaningful way instead of just, you know, stereotyping and promulgating more despairs of dystopia and, and these very disempowering uh, visions of predominantly very depressing things that humanity <laughs> tends to lean towards. I guess all these, all these dots and everything connected and in, in since last few years, I've been trying to marry in my work, sort of very 
much on the ground, uh, deep research. I've worked and traveled and researched in, in 90 countries and counting. Uh, my focus is very much Global South. So I spend a lot of time outside of the places that most other futurists focus on. Really, you know, being on the ground, trying to understand, you know, where is the emergence and what is about and how, you know, what other people define as the black swan events or black swan apparitions. Uh, for me, I see that as, as some kind of pioneering uh, movements of people or ideas for better or worse. And how instead of looking at, at, at these things as some kind of like, you know, freak or sort of minor, um, strange things, extrapolate like, well, how, how these could actually become global movements or how could these could become global innovations? Um, how could um, it affect uh, the world on, on a very global scale? You know, and obviously combine that with a lot of uh, reading and, and, and talking with, with experts um, in the technology space and academic institutions, et cetera. So research is really the foundation of all of it. The next thing is very much uh, giving talks and consulting media companies, tech companies, and more recently also cities, countries, governments. And then the final, and I guess the, the, the fun part and, and the part for, uh, for which a lot of people know me and my work is, is very much that sci-fi world design. Um, so both working on science fiction projects, but also just kind of talking about it, tweeting about it, speaking on, you know, where dystopias and utopias fail and why do we need this, this new framework of protopia? What does that involve and uh, kind of the aesthetics of it, the conceptual framework of it, the spiritual framework of it. Uh, so I guess that's, sorry, that's a long story of <laughs> how, how did I get here and where I'm at right now and uh, hopefully also a little bit of where I'm going. It's incredibly interesting to me. I mean, this is, this is uh, you living your entire life on the edge from a very young age and getting through all of these different experiences and pushing yourself to go to the places that other people aren't going to and building that body of work, which is memory and experience and connection into other, other cultures. I mean, you're in Africa right now uh, and obviously the, the, the African diaspora and, and, and lots of um, sort of ancient cultures as well. From what I can see uh, of what you've been sharing over the years is, is a, a real deep interest in the ancient cultures and now we're sort of caught in this web of, of a global pandemic where, you know, that's a hidden enemy. But the visual enemies, the things that we do see that are prominent, the things that we have to challenge are more real and visceral than we've ever seen before. But ultimately, they're rooted in ancient cultural practices in human society. Right? Yeah, uh, 100%. Um, I don't view a lot of what the Western world uh, defines as sort of ancient cultures in a way it's kind of these words such as you know primitive aboriginal in a way uh, they're quite problematic because they uh, relegate the the worldviews and in in people that represent those worldviews that are mm. uh, sort of um, it's living manifestations into something that is somewhat of the past whereas it, it does exist no matter of sort of the settler patriarchal erasure of it. They're still very much alive and present. It's just that unfortunately our culture 
sort of the dominating culture of the world is quite uh, blind to it. You know, it's, it's like this uh, saying that there's no such thing as, as the voiceless or, or giving voice. Uh, there are only those that are being deliberately unheard. And for me, I guess my research practice is very much about stepping out of um, convenient points of views and convenient truths in, in, in looking um, as much as I can into um, just into the world in all of its many manifestations. And maybe that's why also I have this issue with the word diversity, because mm. in a way, uh, diverse you know, oh, this is a diverse candidate. Oh, this is a very diverse group. It sort of, it implies that somebody else is, is default. And then, well, who is default? Who, who, who made you decide that you are default? So I prefer the word plurality. You know, with, within that very word, we're finding that it, it, plural, it, it's not something, you know, one and then, well, these, all these marginal voices or marginal things. It implies that there's multiplicity of voices and multiplicity of points of views and, um, if you're not integrating uh, those views, then you are actually impoverishing whoever that you're addressing to. You know, if you are a conference and, and, and you organize in such a way that it doesn't embed plurality within it, you impoverish your audience. You know, if you are writing a book and you do not integrate, again, these multiplicity of, of points of views, then, um, you know, again, you know, your reader is, is going to get a very incomplete uh, vision of what the world is about. Um, you know, and, and for me, that, that does involve also looking into a whole lot of uh, quite un, unpleasant places, too. It's not just about, you know, beautiful and very inspiring stuff that a lot of people that look up my Instagram yeah. <laughs> they think that, I'm like, oh, my God, you're living a life. You know, you're going to all these gorgeous places and all that stuff, you know, the depths of Sahara Desert and then the, the Amazon forest and whatever. But, you know, I also go to the sort of the, the, the rabbit holes of sort of right wing Twitter accounts and Reddit threads and all that stuff. And for me, it's very important to understand also these very dark and shadowy places yeah it's 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 very important to to see all of the aspects of it to be able to uh, shape my thoughts on you know yeah absolutely and that's that's a really uh, good segue when we're talking about disappearing into the rabbit holes of information disinformation contrasting points of view the, the infodemic behind the pandemic as well. I mean, uh, the idea of plurality is, is something, you know, I've spoken about when, I, when I've gone and uh, spoken about natural resources in Canada, you know, the First Nations, the importance of that and the, and the balance of communities and whatever, and it's incredibly important. But when we're finding ourselves in this world where we're being told to, you know, sit tight and, and not communicate, not not communicate in person with other people and to, to lock down and suddenly these these uh, whirlpools of information start start forming and i know that we you know we, we spoke about this and we should really get into talking about covid19 and the state of the world uh, framing what we're going to talk about here but like how do we how do we get out of where we are today uh, you know thinking about foresight you know giving guidance uh, not only to governments and uh, the communities around us but into the entertainment and edutainment industry so we can really build a foundation of good information that's going to be culturally relevant and will help culturally fortify the world well these are these are a lot of a lot of uh, questions right and let, let's get into sort of uh, them one by one. 
Uh, but maybe to start with, um, yeah, I want to share a science writer that I, I, I really, really uh, profoundly appreciate um, his reporting uh, during this pandemic. And if, if there's one science writer to read, uh, predominantly, though, you know, disclaimers predominantly for what's happening um, in the Western world, as well as sort of overall medical understanding of, yeah. of the disease. You know, in that way, he, he covers it globally, but, but in, in terms of its impact, you know, he covers it predominantly for America and the Western world. Um, it's Ed Young. He also wrote this, this brilliant book, um, I Contain Multitudes, about our sort of how our microbiome and all these different microorganisms living within our bodies um, really are part of us. You know, one of his articles, Why is Pandemic So Confusing? I think mm. something like that was the title of it. Uh, it's on the Atlantic. And uh, the ending of the article kind of really dug into <laughs> a lot of what's happening today. And what it spoke of is that the, the reasons why this pandemic is happening um, are very complex. And the way it's affecting uh, different populations, uh, different groups of people are also quite complex. Um, so it's not, you know, there's not, it's not black or white. There's a lot of shades of gray and there's a lot of texture to, to, to what is unfolding. Um, but most importantly, that complexity involves also challenging our very own worldview and our own actions. It doesn't allow to externalize and just say, well, it's the blame of this one particular thing, one particular mm. person or one particular technology or one particular conspiracy or something like that, right? And what we've been seeing a lot, you know, the current pandemic is very much happening because of our exploitation of relationship to the natural world of which, over which we do not preside, but rather a part of, right? But we've been acting like we preside upon it which yeah. again, in this case, implies our very core foundational belief systems, right? Our religions and stuff like that. So in this very exploitational way of treating natural environments and encroaching on the natural habitat uh, in a way that, that, that wildlife you know, needs to flee and comes closer and closer to human habitat. And that's what allows for a lot of these uh, diseases to transmit. Um, you know, but that combined then with, with sort of obviously our global networks and how fast the pathogen can move around the world. And then, of course, our weakened immunity because of profoundly unhealthy lifestyles, you know, processed food, lacks of exercise, uh, stress, uh, lack of sort of uh, feeling of uh, fulfillment and, and, and community and um, so on and so forth, right? I mean, these are multiple, multiple reasons. And in a way, how what we see happening in the United States of America of populations of color, immigrant populations, diasporic populations being affected disproportionately, right, by what is happening, you know, that's also, you know, due to sort of institutionalized racism, institutionalized injustice, and, mm. and all of those profound inequities that exist within our society, which again, will always imply at whichever tier of privilege you sit in, that you are part of what is happening, right? 
you know, you need to change as well. You can't just point and say, oh, they are to blame. And, and, and that's why we have these crazy conspiracy theories spreading on, you know, Bill Gates is the most evil man on earth and he's trying to implant us all with whatever. And conveniently, you know, when all these, you know, mass surveillance conspiracy theories spread, you know, they all focus on somebody like Bill Gates, but never mention somebody like Peter Thiel in the same sentence. And you're like, wow, that's quite a glaring omission. Clearly, you don't even understand what surveillance is about, right? You haven't been following neither what Catalytica has been doing, nor Palantir, et cetera, et cetera. You know, then, you know, I can't even enter the whole like 5G conversation, which is like, well, <laughs> basic physics, right? And basic biology, like you can't, you know, if somebody tells you that they figured out this way, you know, that the disease spreads and they don't even understand uh, the biology, uh, the basic biology of what virus is, like, well, you can't discount that opinion already, right? Um, but what it does, it actually points, it points to fail of allocation. It, pay, it, it points to the failure of, um, you know, our culture at large, which, which is delivered through education, but also through entertainment, where things are always explained through this, there's this one big evil, you know, a guy or a woman or a thing. Um, and once we solve that, everything else is solved, rather than speaking about, well, it, maybe it's the system itself and all of us who partake in that system. We're fetishizing, you know, the companies that are the over 100 companies trying to develop a vaccine and that it's within months and that suddenly it's it's coming out as faster than ever, you know, Operation Warp Speed, as the U.S. administration is calling it as well. But like this is this acceleration of conspiracy, the weakened immunity, all of this to me seems like a failure in, of the industrialized complex that we've created, the way that we travel, the way that we communicate, the way that cities are built, the way that communities are sort of put into boxes, right? Absolutely. And again, these are all political, social, biological, cultural, <laughs> physical you know, reasons and, and, and consequences and implications, right? So it, it is this complex web, uh, complex interweaving of, of, of causes and consequences um, that unfortunately, um, neither our popular culture nor our education system does not prepare us uh, to reckon with. Right. And then I think another major thing that I, I just, it, what, what really has been troubling me a lot uh, during this pandemic is uh, seeing some truly phenomenal work uh, being done by researchers and journalists, mm -hmm. predominantly of color, significantly women of color, that are, that are covering sort of the inequities and injustices that are unfolding real time, right? However, very little of that criti critical inquiry, very, very little of these views actually end up in any of the foresight decks, in any of the post-COVID conversations, right? So there's amazing work being done in sort of analyzing what's wrong in the present moment. However, very few of these understandings of those considerations somehow end up in that whole 
you know, world post-COVID or how do we tackle COVID um, type of conversations, especially in the sort of higher levels of, of you know, corporate and, and, and political, um, I don't know what you call it, um, just access, I guess. Yeah. Because um, I think the root cause of this global pandemic right now is pretty much Western exceptionalism. Um, and I found it very funny when uh, I think it was Xinhua TV, <laughs> basically China's national state TV produces a propaganda video, animated little video of them saying to, 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 to America, hey, we got this thing, you know, COVID-19, it's pretty serious, it affects people a lot, da, 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 you know, and then basically America just kind of waving it away. And I think the Western exceptionalism and how it played the role in it becoming truly a global pandemic cannot be underestimated. So even if China has not done it all right, it could have been more transparent, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we know that. I mean, you can't, you can't also be like, I mean, it's a totalitarian state, right? Like you, you can't expect it to have done everything that a democracy would have done. However, you know, they gave enough warnings for the Western world to hate it. And Europe initially was, oh, well, this, this really crazy stuff is happening in China, but surely it couldn't happen to us. And then all of a sudden it was happening. It was happening in Italy, it was happening in Spain, you know, and there were all these gruesome reports of, of triage being done in hospitals and stuff like that. And yet America, was still sort of this profound American exceptionalism was saying to them, nobody could not happen here. And, and the next thing you know, wow, it is happening in New York. And then next thing you know, oh, okay, it's actually affecting disproportionately black and brown populations. Oh, well, okay, so then even if some of us die, more of them die. So it's not that serious, right? right. And I think that's, severely under-discussed part. Similarly, so now I'll, I'll just speak a little bit from African perspective. Um, what happened here on the African continent? What happened, especially here in South Africa? Actually, it wasn't imported by the Chinese. The first COVID-19 cases, majority of the first COVID-19 cases on the African continent were imported either by predominantly wealthy it's in South Africa, predominantly white uh, people that went on their sort of skiing holiday or something like that in Italy um, or international tourists. Right. Right. So, you know, so we knew what was happening in China. People started understanding what was happening in Europe and in Europe, and they still didn't pay enough attention or didn't take the responsibility and brought the disease here on the continent, knowing that, you know, it is much the, the existing infrastructure, um, the financial means of a country's, you know, do not allow the same type of action to tackle, you know, a pandemic explosion here. However, and now surprise, surprise, African governments at large have actually been tap tackling this pandemic much better 
than majority of the Western governments. Now, I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm generalizing, right? Like, yeah. you know, even my, my own country of birth, Lithuania, has tackled the pandemic really quite well, or the Czech Republic, etc. But let's say if we compare it to Western Europe and especially America, African governments have tackled it much better. The lockdowns happened before, in many cases, even the first death. Um, you know, the the this hand sanitizers, wipes and stuff like that have been provided by the government to, to all the shops and, and, and malls and, and any kind of um, social places, social gatherings were banned. Um, you know, people living in the townships uh, have been delivered water tanks to, to increase sanitary conditions. Homeless people have been provided shelters, um, you know, and, and this is happening on the African continent mm. where it is not happening in United States of America, the greatest nation on earth, the wealthiest nation on earth, et cetera, right? Now, Senegal has developed, um, I think, I, I, I'm, I'm afraid to make a mistake, but I believe it's, it's, a, it's a, something like $1 under one hour test. Um, they developed a $60 ventilator. But are we hearing any of these news? Is African leadership being sort of uh, um, elevated in how by international media or how well they've been tackling this crisis? No, we're not hearing any of that. The news that we're hearing is, oh, there are locust swarms in East Africa. So imagine the locust swarms and the famine, famine they could generate plus the coronavirus. Well, that's going to be really bad. Soon enough, we're going to have those terrible stories to report from the African continent. Mm. Right? But we're not having, we're not hearing no positive stories. And it's that much more shocking because, you know, personally, so one of the things that I created to, to way before this pandemic, it's just the means to, it's called Knowledge Exchange Group. Right. <laughs> it's our little group on WhatsApp with friends, creatives, innovators, activists, scientists, researchers, uh, more or less around the globe. We're about 100. Um, and I specifically try to curate different people from different disciplines and, and, and different cultures and, and based in different places. Um, and everybody's, you know, the rule is no, uh, no disinformation, <laughs> no conspiracies, <laughs> please, you know, verify your sources and, and let's exchange meaningful knowledge in whatever that is, right? News articles or books or films or critical opinions, etc. And this group has been really quite instrumental as the pandemic started to unfold for us uh, by people stationed in different parts of the world, uh, you know, from India to Mexico to Brazil to South Africa, uh, Tunisia, America, UK, so on and so forth, right? Um, in kind of updating each other on what has actually happened on the ground. And whenever we're hearing some kind of, oh, these are the crazy news coming from Brazil, can you confirm, is this true? Is this, is this really the reality on the ground? Um, and so it's actually been shocking to have these updates from people in different regions. Uh, you know, most recently, um, a friend of ours uh, was reporting from how Tunisia has been tackling this crisis. And it's been doing that spectacularly spectacularly and yet i have not seen one international one major international news reports on how tunisia has been tackling this crisis so much better than not just you know america or uk but also better than 
Sweden, better than Belgium, better than Netherlands, right? And yeah. so I feel we find ourselves in this, in, you know, a lot of these stories that could be inspiring us, um, that could change our point of view on the world, are just not being rendered visible to us. And of course, it's very, it's very acute during this pandemic. But I just want to say, you know, that that's what happens um, also in popular sort of science fiction storytelling. And you see all these movies where whenever action is happening in the global south, we're just going to put this yellow filter and make everything look real shabby, right? Um, so there's this desire to skew reality to what is convenient to the dominating ideology. And of course, that does not allow us to see uh, the world neither for what it is nor for what it can be. How, how do how do we sort of take something like the Knowledge Exchange Group and sort of bridge that gap? How do we increase the visibility to the stories? How do we how do we engage you know the very large news agencies from Al Jazeera all the way across to to agencies like CNN and crowdsource news groups and you know the people that are really trying to do you know very positive but very open-minded and far-reaching journalism do we keep that group pure and then have bulletins that come out of that or do we bring people in even if they're just as observers yeah well the group is very actually we've been having these conversations uh with a, with a friend of, of mine who was one of the sort of initial people that that you know we were having just this um tea slash drinks uh four of us and, and, and we're like, oh, let's, let's just create this WhatsApp group where we can share with each other um, the, the, the books that we're reading, you know, the, right. the, the, the reading references. Um, and, and he was like, oh, Monica, this, this has become this amazing thing, this amazing group um, mm. that is really helping us to parse. Because a lot of the time we'll also read something, we'll read a book and we're like, who in the group has you know, critical opinion over it? Who has sort of an article to read that maybe takes on this particular writer or or really kind of you know like help us to think critically about stuff but in a way that we're not shouting over each other we, we're really supporting each other um, but i think that is only possible because the group has been highly curated uh, to to include people that are that are informed that are kind that are curious um, that are open, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. But, but indeed we've been thinking, okay, how, how could this scale? How, how could we sort of um, open it to the world? Um, and I have not found uh, the answer yet. But right now, for us, this, this group works because again, if you, we're able to ask each other fairly open questions. Whereas if you'd ask something like that on Twitter, all of a sudden, you, you could get attacked and people would be like, oh my God, you're so ignorant or how, how can you not know this? And the truth is that a lot of us do not know a lot of things, right? Because mm. in a group, there might be somebody who is like a top researcher in um, sort of biomimicry, sort of fungi, technological systems. Um, and then there's somebody who's in activists for indigenous rights or something like that, right? So naturally, everybody will have sort of slightly complementary knowledge, uh, but I'm indeed, you know, I'm indeed thinking of how this could be opened up to, to be a bigger platform. And especially, you know, I think a, a very huge thing for myself has always been 
and that's why I, I go very much um, into the field and, and that's why sometimes my life gets a little hectic and, and I had some close encounters uh, with the other side, uh, the other side meaning, you know, death. Because um, I, I, I get into the field, you know, I don't, I don't stay in just, in just my ivory tower and it, it makes it that much more shocking instances such as, you know, last week I was listening to, to a pod, podcast or interview a YouTube interview between somebody that is considered to be a, a very, uh, very prominent uh, futurist, foresight practitioner, and, and a very kind, lovely person um, that I had the chance to briefly encounter in, 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 in my life. Um, and yet, when I was listening to the conversation between him and an interviewer, who also is an important figure in, um, in this whole kind of like futurist space, I was shook to realize how they were exchanging um, things such as, well, you know, majority, like not majority, all of us, all of us are working from home these days. And I'm like, all of us who, all of us where? Like, right. fact are majority of the world's population is unable to work from home. You know, these are the privilege of, you know, upper middle class. Like majority of the world's population are unable to work from home. Then they were speaking about, you know, and you know, like we have these issues with the bandwidth, you know, because everybody's streaming videos. So the bandwidth gets slower, et cetera. And I'm like, majority of the world's population doesn't have Wi-Fi in their homes. Then they went into, you know, and we, sometimes we don't have enough of the devices. So we have to share some of the devices, <laughs> have some kind of schedule. And I'm like, majority of the world's population, that doesn't have the devices that you speak about, right? right? And so in these moments, you absolutely see these blind spots of a lot of people in our industry in how they don't actually realize what the world is about. Yeah. And, and it, yeah. you know, I had a very, you know, I had a very, and this is maybe like a bit of a rough story to tell, but I, I had something quite extreme happen to me just a few days ago. Uh, me and my friend went on a hike and we went on a hike on a slightly off side of a mountain and we ended up being followed by somebody. Um, and then there was an altercation in the encounter. <laughs> the person pulled out two knives and essentially <laughs> we could have very much been dead by now. Um, and it was, it, the purpose wasn't even robbery. It was somebody who clearly had some mental health issues, maybe drug issues. Um, it was a very, very violent encounter that put a lot of the statistic um, of, you know, violent deaths, uh, especially violent uh, women's deaths um, to a very, um, you know, it made it very personal, it made it very direct. It, it made it into a, essentially first person experience. Um, and I think, you know, but luckily we were able to escape by chance because the person thought I had pepper spray and, and there was like a blink of a moment when uh, he was a little agitated and, and then we just ran for our lives. 
Um, and this is the first time something like that um, happened to me, actually on the continent. I've, I've been mm. very, very safe and I've spent a lot of time here and I've been sort of harassed and attacked much more in the United States of America. Uh, but, but this was something else, you know, this was very, very, very violent. Um, and yeah. what it really made me think is how many of um, the science sort of directors in, in the Hollywood industry at large, um, but especially sort of directors, you know, because I refer a lot to science fiction, science fiction films, um, who direct these movies and who idolize that sort of violence, that sort of end of the world, dystopia, everybody's just being mean and cruel and, and just terrible to each other and try to kill each other. You know, how many of these people actually have experienced any of that in first person? And the answer is very few. Very few of these people who idolize end of the world have ever experienced end of the world. You know, right. whereas a lot of peoples in the global south have experienced end of the world. People in South Africa with apartheid have experienced a full-blown dystopia, right? And that's why it makes the dystopia an end of the world and everybody, you know, man is man kind of visions it makes it less exciting, right? Um, and that's maybe why we shouldn't be fetishizing that. Why, but that's maybe why we should be creating alternative visions of the future. Um, so, I mean, this, this, this kind of uh, crazy incident that, that just happened really made me think of that in, in a very personal manner. Because um, it's, again, it's not the first time when, when um, uh, something like this happened, though this was exceptionally violent. Um, and I'm so glad to be alive. Mm. Um, and I'm so glad also to be reminded um, of this understanding that a lot of people that fetishize these sort of end of the world scenarios have never experienced any significant end of the world in their lives. And then on the flip side, also a lot of the people that just sell utopias and exponential technology is going to save everything and blockchain or AI or VR is this magic pill that all of, all of a sudden is going to change everything also have not experienced reality. You know, they've only experienced that kind of privileged, um, very upper middle class global North perspective. And, and, and both of these, both of these options, neither so that unrealistic utopian thinking nor, um, you know, utterly depressing, dystopian um, vision is helpful in these times that yeah. we're living. Yeah, and it, it, for, for me, this seems it, overall, uh, it's, it's a lack of compassion, empathy, creativity, experience, and even, you know, going out to find the experiences, I, I completely... Yeah, <laughs> I connect with you, and 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 have I've been so mad at so many people. You know, this is the great pause, and this is the great reckoning, and this is this. I've fallen myself into these traps as well. And you know, TV, radio interviews—they just want to talk about disrupted transportation and whatever. And I've just worked with a couple of clients where it's, you know, behind the scenes conversations are getting super real, especially when you're running global organizations. And this comes down to you know, equity uh, and recognition of cultures uh, within continents and, and not coming in and suddenly trying to, you know, whitewash, greenwash, whatever you want to call it. You know, those cultures with, you know, a brand 
uh, a brand hierarchy and a brand playbook that suddenly, you know, it works in the US, uh, it works in, in South America, but maybe it doesn't work in Asia, maybe it doesn't work in, in, uh, in, in the African continent as well. But that's okay, because they can fall into line, right? Yeah, actually, um, I'm, I'm just reading uh, this amazing book called The Sand Talk. Um, and just as I was having uh, lunch, uh, this is the passage that uh, that that was spoken. Um, and if I may quote it, I think it's yeah. quite uh, related to what you're saying. And so the passage reads, the most remarkable thing about Western civilization is its ability to absorb any object or idea, alter it, sanitize it, rebrand it, and market it. Even ideas that are a threat can be co-opted and put to work. The Romans did it with Christianity an ideology of the poor and enslaved that threatened the foundations of the empire. When torture and murder became ineffective as deterrence, they simply embraced the idea and made it state religion, rewriting the holy text to suit their needs and rebranding as a new system of control. In the same way, in the same way that plans can be tweaked at the genetic level to become the intellectual property of one company and then replace all similar crops in a region, ideas can be re-engineered to serve the interests of the powerful. It's not conspiracy, it's just power doing what power does, right? And I think, I mean, this passage was, it was just, it just summed up so much of what is being happening. And I call it, you know, sort of the design for industry. And, right. and for me, if, if you start with the notion that you're designing for rather than designing with, you know, if you're coming from the outside, you're looking at things from a sort of ivory tower, bird's eye view, you don't even understand what is the soil on which you're standing who lives in that soil what what are all of these entangled ecosystems you will never do the right thing never ever you know unless you're designing with you know in a truly equitable collaborative way you <laughs> you always end up with an exploitational system Right. And, 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 and also this notion of what, what he speaks, what the writer, um, uh, the brilliant, brilliant writer, Tyson Yumka Porta, you know, what, what, what he speaks about is that the importance of understanding different idea systems behind power. And I think that's where our education has failed and our education is failing today from the education of history, where we essentially being taught history as a series of events that succeed each other rather than you know, a series of ideas that are being birthed and then modified and then sometimes completely turned around and misused and co-opted and how those ideas truly have consequences to actually the ideas behind a lot of sort of scientific and technological talk of today, mm. you know, and in a, in a really, really funny instance, and let's mark it sort of as, as this moment in time, um, I found it, <laughs> this, there was a fascinating exchange between Ivanka Trump, Elon Musk, and Lily Wachowski um, the other day. And Elon Musk tweeted, take the red pill, which is very much sort of a dog whistle to the, I guess, to sort of to, 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 to the right wing. 
you know, the, the very notion of sort of like getting red pilled and stuff like that of, of a lot of conspiracy theories and, and all these, um, you know, uh, Reddit corners of the internet. And then Ivanka responded to it, taken. And then Lily Wachowski <laughs> <laughs> said, fuck both of you. Lily Wachowski is, is you know, obviously a co-creator of, of the Matrix, you know, and, and Matrix was co-created by two trans women and the red pill actually in a way was a reference to the estrogen pill right right <laughs> so it is so fascinating right to see how a, a particular idea that was done that was sort of uh, developed in a, in a project by these two trans women has been completely co-opted by a political party that, that that missed its meaning entirely but at some point the creator just had enough and said, okay, well, this is not what this was about. And kind of then the shock that, that happens to the system when people that sort of been living on a, on a, on a particular ideology, you know, has its own creator say, actually, you completely misunderstood it. Most of the time people just keep putting the blinders on and say, well, actually, I'll pretend that I have never heard it. Or like, when, why would you put them these ideas out in the marketplace if you're not willing for us to twist and turn and just make them into whatever it is? Um, you know, but, but these are very important conversations to be had. And especially when it comes to future, especially when it comes to any of that technological futurist talk, it's important to understand what and who these ideas serve and what and who these ideas and these tools and these platforms not will only underserve but will further marginalize right? right and unless we having that conversation we're not really having a conversation about the future yeah and absolutely and L lily wakowski didn't actually you know feel any need to describe what she was feeling or whatever it was raw it was visceral it was very directional and it was uh, it was complete in its in its brevity right um i feel that this is this is incredibly valuable conversation and this is this feels like the beginning of of many conversations that, that we can have monica um so i'm, I'm aware of, of the time that we have and and whatever um can you just share with with the audience you know, where, where they can connect with you see your see your thinking and your writing and uh and and try and you know direct them a little bit towards uh sort of those communities that that you participate with 100 percent um so i'm just under my name at uh monica bielskite uh m-o-n-i-k-a-b-i-e-l-s-k-y-t-e -E <laughs> on uh, most of the social media channels Right. Um, so I guess uh, Twitter, I, I retweet a lot of uh, people and work uh, from my community. So, you know, if you, if you are looking to follow thinkers, writers, activists that are coming from these multiple, multiple perspectives, um, you know, tuning into my Twitter um, is, is, a, is a good place. My Instagram is really a lot of my travel and journeys and, 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 and my life, but hopefully some inspiring moments uh, as well for now when, when we all kind of locked in at home, because I try to, you know, as, as, I, as I travel the world, um, I try to tell the stories both of sort of the present, the past and, and the future. And um, a lot of my talks can be found on, on YouTube and uh, Vimeo. So just, just look up my name and, and look up whatever's most recent. 
And uh, the, the newest project, I, I just added a couple of weeks ago, or what it seems like a couple of weeks, and you know, time is, is liquid, time is elastic, is at Protopia Futures. So Protopia Singular Futures, uh, plural, on Instagram. And that's where I'm sharing just some images that, that inspire me, uh, that have been inspiring, uh, that triggered ideas in, in my head with with a commentary and sort of daily, I guess, thoughts and inspirations and, and mm. reading um, on the Instagram stories. Thank you so much, Monica Bilskite. Uh, I've been following you uh, online for, for quite some time. I, I find it incredibly useful to, to, to go down into the rabbit holes that you uh, present to me on, uh, certainly on, on Twitter. So uh, I'm gonna leave a link, not only to your Twitter and Instagram handles, uh, as part of this podcast, I'm going to link to everything from like the $1 COVID-19 test in Senegal, Sand Talk link, all the way through to Ed Yong's Why is the pan Pandemic So so Confusing. But Monica Bilskite, thank you very much. You stay safe down there in South Africa and keep pushing the boundaries of thinking. Thank you so much. I, I feel so lucky um, to be weathering the storm in, in such a beautiful place that I'm, that I'm in. 